Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second webinar in the 2023 Science Series on Advocacy in Rare Disease, entitled Crafting the Narrative. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. This is our third year exploring the challenges and successes in the rare diseases field, including diagnosis and detection, testing, research hurdles and opportunities, and mental health challenges. We've also looked at finding solutions and exploring options to improve opportunities for both those researching and dealing with rare diseases. This year, we've shifted our focus to advocacy, and today we're going to discuss the stories we tell when it comes to rare disease and how advocates can use words to raise awareness, provide education, build relationships, and lobby for change. Finally, a thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and the series. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome a brilliant panel. I'll give each of them a chance to say hello and introduce themselves. And I'll start off with Sparsh Shaw. Welcome, Sparsh. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Ms. Berg. It's an honor to be here among you all. Uh, my name is Sparsh Shah. I am 20 years old. I am a singer, rapper, songwriter, music producer, inspirational speaker, Guinness World Record holder, and philanthropist who also has osteogenesis imperfecta type 8. Thank you, Sparsh. I'd next like to welcome Mary Dunkel. Thank you so much for being here, Mary. Thanks, Erica. Uh, so I am a senior advisor to the National Organization for Rare Disorders, or NORD. I've been with NORD uh, since 1999, actually. Originally joined as senior director of communications and for many years oversaw NORD's communications, our website, our publications, and that sort of thing. I'm focusing a little more now uh, specifically on NORD's educational outreach. Thank you so much, Mary. And finally, a warm welcome to Anne Rancourt. Many thanks for joining us, Anne. Thank you for having me. I'm the communications director at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, part of the National Institutes of Health, uh, where I've worked for more than a decade working on women's health, HIV, and drug use and addiction issues. Thank you so much, Anne. Um, so today we'll be starting off talking about language. My first question is for Sparsh. Sparsh, should we be using the term rare disease? Um, I think as with anything to do with language, it has to do with context. And so rare disease is no exception, especially because this topic means different things to different people, right? It means different things to scientists, different means different things to patients and different things to communities. And so I feel like rare disease in particular, the way that I have experienced that word, I feel like most times that we use that word, we use it in quite a scientific context. And so with that context in mind, I feel like rare disease is entirely appropriate to use because it is a rare condition, and many rare diseases do leave us with some sort of functional impairment, be it uh, physical or neurological or maybe something in between those lines or both. So, yeah, I think the only thing I would say about 
you know, the use of rare disease would be that it's probably just not best to use it anywhere where it would make someone feel like they're less than someone else just because they have a rare disease mm -hmm. and someone else does it. Thank you. Mary or Anne, any additional comment on that? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts and, and I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, I know we've certainly wrestled over the years with how do we convey that you never want to imply that these diseases are inconsequential because they're rare. Uh, and, you know, I think that's certainly a, a valid point. We've uh, used slogans and campaigns over the years, such as everyone knows someone with a rare disease, because it's when, when you think of rare, it's easy to think, oh, that's something that hardly ever happens and it happens to somebody else. So it's sad, but I'm not gonna, it's not going to affect me. So we have struggled against that and, and had numerous ongoing campaigns over the years. There is, as uh, Sparsh mentioned, scientific context, and I think there is a practical reason uh, why we would have to use something like the word rare, and that's uh, that this year, actually, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act which has been incredibly impactful and important for this community. And that was a piece of legislation that the patient advocates who found ignored worked very hard to get passed by Congress. And it was signed by President Reagan actually in 1983. And it provides financial incentives that have been incredibly important in encouraging research and development of treatments for these diseases. Uh, so for purposes of that legislation and to qualify for the incentives, a disease has to be believed to affect fewer than 200,000 Americans. Mm. Thank you. Um, and Anne, maybe you have not thought much about rare disease, but I imagine in your um, line of work, you think a lot about language. Would you um, talk about a little bit about sort of how you decide how to describe a, a particular condition um, in, in it's the Drug and Substance Abuse Agency, is that right? Sure, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that these types of conversations are really happening across uh, diseases and conditions, um, really often brought about by the patient community um, and and their loved ones, you know, people who for many, many years have had labels applied to them um, from really, you know, scientific or medical or policy gatekeepers. And now we're in a period where, you know, we're really questioning that and in many cases revising them to, I think, be more reflective of um, a person with lived experiences uh, perspective on things. And I think that that's wonderful and really valuable um, and a, really an important conversation worth having. Um, you know, uh, the thing that I try to keep in mind um, as we go, as, as these, as names change and issues arise, uh, is to always really keep an open mind. You know, language is ever evolving. I mean, that's just a constant thing in, in culture and across cultures. 
And so it's uh, as we as we make changes to the language that we use, um, it's it's a good opportunity to be open and to be reflective on kind of the the changes behind it. What's what is the emotion? What is the reasoning? What is the scientific accuracy mm. behind the changing name? And how can that conversation about the name itself? inform the science, inform the conversation, inform policy. There's, you know, it, it can be an issue that really opens up a broader conversation um, with a lot of benefits. Great. Thank you so much. And on a related note, um, and a, a related term that is sometimes used would be disability. And I was wondering, um, Sparsh, if you had any thoughts on whether or not we should be using the term disability when it's applied um, in the rare disease space. Yeah, of course. Thank you for asking. Um, again, context is emperor. So um, I think disability, the way that now I have heard this term being used in general, I feel like it's a label that has been applied to us, as Miss Anne so beautifully said. Um, but the cool thing is, you know, People in marginalized groups have an amazing ability to take the labels that society places on them and then own them. Like, for example, how, you know, the LGBTQ plus community adopted the word queer or the Christian community adapted the word Christian. Um, these were all derogatory labels and we took them and made them our own. And the same way I feel like when you look at the very word disabled, it's disabled. So like it implies that because of our functional impairments, there's something about us that makes us less than people who don't have, let's say, a disability. And so as a philanthropist and through the music that I make and through the speeches that I give, that's something that I really try to tell people, you know, to, to break that stigma surrounding that word. Because, again, I have been super blessed to be able to do all the different things, for example, that I mentioned in my introduction, that I guess without uh, boasting about it or anything, um, it's a huge blessing to be able to live the life that I live. And I really feel like this is something that um, I also evolved in learning for ex like, for example, I used to tell people, you know, there's that saying, right? Uh, when one door closes, another one opens. And so I used to tell people that, you know, God closed the door on my ability to walk, but then he opened the door, you know, to my voice and like for me to be able to speak and sing and all of these things. And then you know, I think in around like 2020, I was doing this essay, uh, a scholarship essay for Lime Connect. And um, they were asking me about what my viewpoint is about disability. And during that deep reflective period, I came to realize, you know, well, is the reason I'm really saying that one door closed and one door open because that's how I feel about myself? Or is it just because it's the best way to explain my situation 
to people who live in a world that wasn't originally built for us. Mm. Because if this world was built for us, then I feel like a lot more people would then see it as now the way I see it as God never closed the door on me by giving me this condition. Science or nature never gave me some gave me a bad hand by giving me this genetic mutation. It's it's a window. It's not a door. And I've just started to realize that. And you know, now all you gotta do is you open the window and go out. And that's what I'm doing. Thank you. Um, so this next question is for Mary and so you're at Nord, and, and so I was curious, Nord is one of these um, umbrella organizations that partners with uh, a variety of smaller sort of patient advocacy groups. So I was curious about how do communication approaches differ for an umbrella organization that is considering many different um, rare diseases versus a, a patient advocacy group that may be targeted on a single um, rare disease? Sure, great question. And I'll just preface this by saying that we always uh, defer to the disease-specific organizations as the experts mm. on their diseases. Uh, and we frequently get, for instance, uh, media inquiries asking, seeking medical experts to speak on certain diseases or certain topics that are in the news. And we always go first to the disease-specific groups to see if one of their medical advisors would want to do that. But I think there's a, a really wonderful and unique role for the umbrella organizations. Um, and I should mention that there are organizations like NORD around the world too, and we, and we work with them. But I think our role is to help to amplify the voices of the individual disease-specific patient groups by bringing them together, helping them to see our common ground, you know, what are our shared interests in all across the spectrum of topics in public policy, in research, in education. How can we work together to educate, you know, the public, medical professionals, medical students uh, about particular rare diseases and rare diseases in general. Mm -hmm. So there are many aspects of living with a rare disease that are that really have many commonalities across the spectrum of diseases. So we Nord's slogan actually is alone we are rare, together we are strong. And we try to help the people in all the individual groups find that you know, shared experience together and figure out how best to work together. And, and we also provide a platform to amplify their voices. Um, and even things like a Facebook group where the leaders of the individual patient organizations can share their experiences, ask questions of each other, you know, figure out best practices, best ways to address certain things. So it's, I think it's a really nice mix of these in many, many individual disease-specific groups that are doing fantastic work on behalf of their communities. And then through NORD, they can come together and figure out how best to work together. And even beyond that, there's an organization like NORD in Europe, Eurordis. Mm -hmm. We 
work closely with them uh, and other organ. We helped form an organization in Australia years ago. So many other umbrella groups around the world. Um, so, Anne, uh, I was curious about what communi what communication tools you've used um, that you found has work best when applied to influential groups and high-level decision makers? How can we communicate um, with those groups most effectively? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like there's so much conversation uh, lately in the past 20 years about what can be done on social media and using digital tools. And all of that is incredible. I mean, it's really, uh, I think, democratized a lot of communications and outreach and sharing of stories, which are incredibly powerful. Um, but when it comes to reaching influential groups, uh, you know, I think uh, it's kind of gone out of vogue to talk about the role of mainstream media as a really powerful communications tool. But at the end of the day, it really remains uh, just incredibly um, important. Uh, and so working with large media out outlets um, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, broadcast news uh, remains essential to reaching huge groups of millions of people with one story. Um, working with reporters there who are amazing at their craft, at storytelling, at researching these extremely complex areas of disease and of science uh, and teasing apart those stories and the issues that matter there um, is incredibly rewarding and can have a huge impact in reaching organizations and people who are really working at, um, at a high level in terms of, you know, with a national reach, with a statewide reach, uh, getting into the daily paper there um, really draws attention, uh, gets an issue noticed and can be an important first step toward a conversation um, on disease issues that might not have been urgently on the radar before. Thoughts, Sparsh or Mary, mainstream media? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can come up with this from a few perspectives, right? I mean, as a musician and, and speaker trying to develop his craft, it's like mainstream media is definitely one of the best tools that we can use to share our story. And I think, you know, thinking back to times when, you know, I was covered quite a lot by mainstream media, like, for example, uh, my cover of Eminem's Not Afraid, I mention this because one of the main angles for press to grab on with this story was, yes, this was a viral cover, but it's also a viral cover by a 12-year-old who has osteogenesis imperfecta. And so now me as a patient, I could take this one of two ways, right? I could either say, oh, why are people trying to, you know, grab onto the disability side of things all the time? Or what I decided to do is like, okay, this is great. And honestly, this is one of the ways in which, I mean, it's actually a privilege for me to be 
you know, disabled because it brought me to a much higher place um, in my career. And not only that, I was able to use the, you know, my contact with mainstream media and all the stories that people were telling about me to be able to say, first of all, yes, this is what I have. This is my condition. Bring awareness about OI. But then second, to be able to clearly say, no, this is not about pity or sympathy. Um, this is about, look, look at me not for what I look like, but what I can do and what I can bring to the world. And I think that kind of talent, that kind of ability, it's not, It perhaps it might be a little harder to find in people with rare disease. It may be a little easier in some cases, but no matter what, if we can find the hidden gems in everyone and polish that coal into diamond, then it doesn't matter whether you have a rare disease or not, whether you're disabled or not. Um, yeah, you, you can make an impact on the world and that's what makes you uniquely you and that's why you belong here and you're worth it. So um, I'll just add. Oh, yes, please. All uh, right. Just just one brief follow up thought. I think having a compelling call to action mm. is always really, really helpful. Uh, and I'm remembering we do an annual conference in the fall where we bring together leaders of patient groups and researchers and medical professionals and uh, government partners from NIH, from the offices at NIH and FDA. Uh, that deals specifically with rare diseases and orphan products. And every year as we're in the, the period of time leading up to the conference, I get so many inquiries from leaders of patient groups uh, who see this as an opportunity to somehow catch the interest of a, a researcher or somebody at NIH or somebody uh, you know, who might be able to, who might become interested in their disease. So one year we uh, essentially said, what would you want to tell the world about your disease in 200 words or less? Mm -hmm. And we invited people to submit these little vignettes and each one with a photo to go with it. We got wonderful, wonderful stories from people and photos and we put them together in a little booklet to hand out at the conference. And I submitted an op-ed piece to the Wall Street Journal that they used, much to our great delight. Um, and it, it actually does happen though, these sort of spontaneous moments when a researcher hears or reads something like this from one of the patient groups and the light bulb goes off and he or she thinks, oh, you know, that's similar to this other mechanism of action that I'm studying and, and those connections are made that can lead to really important work. Great, thank you. And this, you know, I think a few of you have brought up, you know, this idea of storytelling as being sort of central to, um, you know, crafting this public narrative. Um, and what would you say is the role of storytelling sort of in advocacy uh, in general with respect to health um, and then 
we can talk about rare disease more specifically, but I thought we could talk more generally about the role of storytelling in advocacy and health. Yeah, yeah, stories are so powerful. I mean, when you think about the role that storytelling has played throughout human history, it is the stickiest way to get something embedded in someone's brain. You know, this is how humans have conveyed information for thousands of years. It's been written into song. It's been written into epic poems, you know, from Homer. Um, this is how we teach our children uh, what we want them to do through uh, nursery rhymes and fairy tales. Um, and so you really cannot underestimate what the power of a good story, a good short to the point story with Mary, as Mary's saying, having a succinct call to action or takeaway from it um, is incredibly valuable. And I think that, um, you know, I work with a lot of scientists on trying to tell a research story. Um, and so uh, there's always a push pull between, you know, wanting to share a lot of data, a lot of numbers, a lot of, you know, prevalence data. Um, and, and then this more human side of sharing stories to convey emotion. And they're both important. They both serve their own role. But, you know, I think that when people walk away from a conversation, if they've heard a compelling story, they're going to remember that forever. You know, when you think about some of the most impactful conversations you've had with people, you remember the story that they told, you remember the emotions that were in it, and the way that it made you feel and how you related to it. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, people are often afraid to tell a story, it feels kind of really colorful, really imaginative. And when you're talking about medicine or about science, it's like, oh, I don't know if that's the place to be imaginative or to tell, you know, to really uh, use a story. But it absolutely is because it's how people are going to connect, and it's how people are going to take action because they feel compelled based on uh, the emotion that they've they've experienced from the story. Um, and I think that uh, there's also a lesson to be taken from um, uh, comedians. I always think of comedians in talking about kind of training to tell these stories. You know, comedians don't just go out on stage and do a stand-up routine. You know, they hone it, telling jokes, telling their stories over and over and over again at comedy clubs until they really have it packaged in exactly the right way so that it hits their audience and they get the response that they're looking for. I mean, in their case, obviously, laughter. Um, but, but that's part of storytelling is, you know, figuring out what your story is, how you want to tell it, what are the details that people really respond to, watching your audience as you tell the story and really working on it over and over and over again until you come out with the best way of telling that story and then repeating it over and over and over again. Thank you. That totally agree with... Mm -hmm. Totally agree with everything Anne said, and I'm just sitting here thinking, I wonder how many, many lives Orsh has touched with the stories that he has told through his talks and, and videos. I think with rare diseases, you know, if anything, it's even more important than with other kinds of health-related topics because there are 
thousands of these diseases, mm. anywhere from seven to 10,000 or more, depending on you know, whether you're counting the various subtypes and that sort of thing. Uh, many of them have very strange, very long names. It's hard for people to remember. They may sound foreign, uh, you know, just, but having a real person who's living with that disease share his or her story of, you know, in a, in a positive way uh, of the realities of, of living with that disease on a daily basis can really mobilize people to understand and be more aware and, and want to help and support. And I think I'll just add that we also see an incredible bump uh, in, for instance, traffic on our website or just the general public conversation when a celebrity or some well-known person mm. makes public that he or she is affected by a rare condition. Um, some months ago, the singer Celine Dion said that she has stiff person syndrome, and that's a condition that you hear very little about. Mm. But my goodness, we got a huge bump in traffic to our website after she made that announcement and people were going directly to our report on stiff person syndrome. And I know that the organization specifically for that community was getting tons of media inquiries because we were going to them to see if they wanted to comment or have one of their medical experts commented and they were saying, you know, it's wonderful, but we're were swamped. So there's um, recently at, at our 40th anniversary dinner uh, at the, the uh, National Portrait Gallery in Washington, Peter Alexander of NBC News served as MC because his sister has a rare condition known as Usher syndrome. And he's actually done a wonderful job of promoting awareness of that condition. So I just Anytime somebody like that makes some sort of public comment on his or her experiences, it really reaches a lot of people and it's very helpful to the community. Yeah, and that, that brings me to a question. Um, so it sounds like in these cases, these celebrities had a personal connection um, to rare disease, but in cases where maybe they don't, how can we influence the influencers, politicians, public figures, how do we raise awareness and influence them to get involved? Uh, Mary, do you wanna start with that? Sure, happy to. So I think collaboration is key. It's, you know, there really is a, a wonderful community of people coming from different perspectives who are interested in rare diseases for, for various reasons. Uh, and this includes the, the leaders of the patient advocacy groups, but also medical professionals, uh, the, the doctors uh, who choose to devote their careers uh, to, you know, focusing on rare diseases really are a special breed of, of people and they're very, very supportive of the patient organizations and the patient communities. So I think if, you know, if you can bring those folks together and public health experts, uh, there have been some wonderful things written and said in presentations in recent years 
uh, including I'm, I'm thinking of one doctor in particular at CDC who's been very active in exploring this idea of rare diseases as a public health concern. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think once again, trying to get away from, even if we have to use the word rare, trying to get away from this idea that it's just something that happens infrequently to somebody else, but, you know, bringing together uh, this community of people who are either treating patients, doing research in the pharmaceutical industry, developing products for rare diseases. Um, to to show a, a united front and to work together in getting our messages out there. Um, I think in my experience, uh, the pe public officials really want to do a good job. Uh, they have to work within certain budgets. They have, you know, certain limitations and constraints. But if we do our homework, if we pull the community together and make a good case to them, I think they do listen. Thank you. Sparsh or Anne, anything to add influencing the influencers? Um, I think this is a really interesting conversation and what Miss Mary was talking about was really cool because it just started making me think of my work as a philanthropist. And one of the main ways that I've been really blessed to help serve you know, people who are less privileged than me and, or just people who just have it worse than I do in terms of especially like infrastructure or socioeconomically or things like that. Um, and in the rare disease slash disability sector, um, I, I'm a youth ambassador and uh, advocate for some of these organizations that I work with. And one of them, for example, is uh, the Voice of Specially Abled People, or VOSAP, VOSAP. And the reason I mention them is because it goes exactly with this topic. Mm. Um, I think there are two prongs, main prongs through which we, or really three, three main prongs through which we help elevate the lives of people with disabilities, or as we call them, specially abled people, First being grassroots, right? Like a mobile app where people can just sign up, volunteer, and then you can actually, using the map we have, go to any public place and take a picture and rate it for accessibility. Mm. And not just like, okay, does this have a ramp for people in wheelchairs? But also like, do the elevators have braille on it? So, you know, blind people can read them. Or like, are there, um, are there people available to help guide people who are hard of hearing? Um, or like tour guides or stuff like that available. So that's grassroots. But then there's academia. Like we've been starting research internships with, you know, college students. It's something that I want to be a part of one day. I got to speak at one of their um, summer internship conferences to the students. Um, yeah, so we do lots of research on every single aspect of the, you know, issues surrounding people who are differently abled um, in terms of policy, in terms of um, just data. It's all about data-driven research to, again, go to the top level, which is, you know, politicians, which is um, governments. And so, like, 
two things, you know, on two fronts. The first being like we've been working quite a lot with the government of India and a lot of their um, a lot of their legislation and even their change in language regarding people who are differently abled um, that we're happy to say that we're one of the organizations that has helped to foster that change in language and in uh, legislation, bringing more accessibility in terms of infrastructure to, for example, government buildings, changing the word viklang to devyang um, in, uh, you know, current public discourse in India. Um, and then in America, recently, one thing that we've been doing is like, you all may have heard of like ADA 2.0. And so that's something that we're also trying to work on, talking to people about them, um, you know, legislators, about getting that passed, because that's going to bring a lot of benefit, again, in terms of government and infrastructure and everything for people with, uh, you know, who are differently abled. So, yeah, I just thought I'd mention that, because it just fit right in. Yeah, thank you. Um, so this uh, question is for Anne. So... We've been talking about the power of stories, um, and one goal for this webinar is to help that you can, through your stories, help people who are watching this um, improve their own advocacy efforts. So, Anne, do you have um, a, a public campaign advocacy success story um, from, from your experience that you could share with us that we could benefit from hearing about? Sure. Well, in the spirit of, of storytelling and the power of stories, I mean, one of the one of the most famous uh, stories of advocacy and NIH working together was way before my time um, in the late 1980s. Um, but it's a story I think that that sticks with us um, is the story of uh, AIDS activists uh, that came to the NIH campus to protest. Um, against policies that were keeping them from getting uh, life-saving drugs uh, outside of uh, the auspices of a clinical trial um, and held these incredibly, incredibly visual. Um, you know, I mean, obviously this was before Instagram, before we were all trying to create, you know, these incredible visuals that you could photograph, but but just an incredibly visual, incredibly theatric um, and passionate uh, protest um, that drew a ton of media attention, but also obviously the attention of, of NIH leaders um, who, uh, who I think finally um, resonated with what the advocates were asking for and invited them in and sat down with them and that began a really productive conversation. Um, and the advocates were, like so many disease advocates, incredibly well-versed in the science, were not themselves scientists or having scientific training, but really wanted to learn, wanted to have that productive conversation. Um, and I, what I think is so interesting about that story now is that there was this incredibly pivotal point where there had to be a change from, you know, the theatrical uh, protest, and certainly those continued and needed to happen to uh, continue the pressure, um, but coming to sit down in a room together and begin that conversation. And that's really a pivotal 
point in the process of advocacy uh, and on the government side as well for hearing that advocacy and being receptive to it and bringing it to the table. And in that instance uh, for, for AIDS, for HIV, um, you know, it, it resulted in a great change to, uh, to clinical trial policy. Uh, people were able to gain access to the medications that could help save their lives. So, um, you know, I, it, but, but both sides really, you know, there's this mutuality to coming to that point and recognizing when it was time to sit down together, when to have, how to have that conversation, knowing both sides that they continue to each have their own perspectives, their own agenda moving forward. But, okay, how can we begin to do this together? And, you know, I think that there, there has to certainly be an openness on both sides to, to finding that point and knowing that for progress, that point must be realized. Um, and so, so that's something that I think is a great example to, to keep in mind. And I know that, you know, as a public official, I mean, that's one of the, one of the stories that's very important in our, you know, culture, I guess, organizational culture at NIH, um, to, to be mindful of that. And that was really one of the first times or one of the most impactful times that it became so clear that people with lived experience must be involved in the research process in setting the agenda, designing the research, um, and having a voice throughout the process. Great, thank you. Anyone else have a success story they'd like to share, Mary, from NORD or your previous work? Uh, I guess more in the rare disease space. Sure, absolutely. Uh, one that comes to mind is Rare Disease Day. Mm. Um, I was uh, in 2008, I was in Europe for a conference and I remember coming back to my hotel room that evening and just kind of flipped on the TV and suddenly became aware that there were stories about people with rare diseases on TV. And that was kind of amazing to me. Uh, and so then when I got back home to the States, I heard from our friends at Eurorodis, the European umbrella organization, and it turned out that they had, that that was the first ever rare disease day that they had launched. And they did it uh, purely to promote awareness and to educate. And um, it, it was a pretty successful first day. And so then they asked Nord to bring it to the US the next year in 2009 which we did. Uh, it takes place on the last day of February each year because the first one was on a February 29th, mm. the rarest day. And, and it's just grown. I, you know, I have to admit my initial reaction was kind of, well, that's nice, but there's so many awareness days. It's, you know, kind of passe. I don't know if we want to add one more, but I kind of reluctantly got dragged into doing it. And it's turned out to be hugely beneficial for the community and it's grown and just incredibly over the years. If, if you're anywhere near social media, you know, beginning anytime in February and culminating on that last day, uh, you'll just see tons of posts of stories, photos, uh, special events taking place. NIH hosts a wonderful rare disease day event each year now. Nord 
creates resources for teachers to use in the classroom and local uh, you know, families who want to educate students can work with their teacher to go into the school on that day. Uh, just all sorts of things happening and it's it's really been huge and media, obviously tons of media stories. Great, thanks. And um, on the topic, oh, Sparsh, did you have something to add? My bad, looking for the mute button. <laughs> um, yeah, I did, if it's okay, I wanted to share very quickly a success story. Um, there was something really cool that we at VOSAP had done um, during the pandemic uh, 2020. Um, we called it the Art from Heart contest. And I think this really ties into what Miss Mary is saying and also to what Miss Anne is saying about, you know, uh, the colorful theatrical way of telling a story. And basically for this, uh, we had a contest. And so we invited people from all over the world. Um, this was the first international contest, art contest specifically on the theme of disability. And so we had people um, just create visual art that, you know, deals with the anxieties or hopes or the fears or the joys of people who are specially abled. And so if I, I'm trying to get all the, um, you know, statistics right, but I think it was like 53 countries or something like definitely at least a hundred maybe 200 cities all over the world and there were um just there were a ton like hundreds of artists who like applied and we i remember when it was time for like the annual gala that year um you know we were declaring all the winners and just looking at the art it was like wow like and it was so cool because a lot of the people submitting art were people with these lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And so that art flowed straight from their hearts. And, you know, being an artist myself, it's like I can relate to that. And it was amazing to see, like, this, the power of storytelling is there in the places I think that we can least expect it. I think that's where the most powerful stories can be told. And so that really, I think, goes to show how important it is to get stories from, as John Legend would say, ordinary people um, living with, you know, rare disease or any other health related or any other issue of importance. Thank you. So, um, this is also for you, Sparsh. Uh, how can, so social media, obviously a big part of the conversation when, when it comes to public outreach. Um, what are some uh, best practices for using social media or other engagement tools for raising awareness? Mm -hmm. This is a great question. And to be very honest with you, I feel like this is something that I'm still learning. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm still a growing and developing influencer and I'm, you know, not just doing this as, uh, you know, just for advocacy, be advocacy, but also in terms of my career. And so I think one, I want to talk about something totally unique. Um, I think one interesting thing 
that I would love to see more and I think I would love to do more as well um, as an influencer is to think from the perspective of modern social media trends, not just specifically in advocacy, but like social media trends as a whole. Like, you know, when you think of popular songs on TikTok or like different um, things based on that. Now, imagine taking those wildly popular trends or creating those popular trends. If you're, you know, like someone in the music space like me who's trying to make their songs that trend worthy. Um, but then taking that and pairing it with a story that can help advocate for rare disease, pairing it with lived experience. Like, for example, like I'm just being very specific and thinking about like there is one thing that I did. Uh, recently, I had released a song called This Is Me, The Rap Prince. And I kind of explain it as like the first verse is my autobiography in a sense, a mini autobiography. The second verse is like my vision statement to the world. And so, you know, in the first song, I'm talking about my whole life and how like I the doctors gave me 48 hours to live. I had like 35 to 40 broken bones coming out of the womb. So those kinds of things, right? I'm, in a sense, indirectly telling people about OI. I'm telling people about what I go through um, as a person with OI. And one thing I did was, you know, I took these particular lines. Um, I was bound to die. Ain't no lie. Parents cried. Life hung a thread of silk. But I survived that trial, the first of many cases. Um, and I took that. I survived that trial. And the musician was in me was like, repeat that. I survived that. I survived that. I, and every time uh, it repeats, it switches images. And I just made a bunch of images that kind of tell that story of my life. And I was like, okay, now let's see. I, I mean, I haven't yet seen it, but would love to see people, you know, using that sound. And then I survived that trial, like taking those lyrics, making them universal, right? And then now everyone can use that sound, for example, that template to like tell their story of the trials that they survived in life, whether they have a rare disease or not. And so that starts now can start an even bigger conversation because the whole context of that verse was what made me different and why I almost wasn't here to be here today. And so that's a very specific example, but I think it would be so cool to continue being able to use popular trends like that or create trends like that, that, appeal to the masses and then in a somewhat subtle way, but also in a very natural way. I think subtle is not the right word. Natural is the right word. In a natural way, be able to talk about, you know, things like rare disease and other health issues through storytelling. Thank you. And Mary or Anne, from sort of an organizational perspective, social media, best practices? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I will leave the best practices to Sparge because I don't think there's any uh, competing with that. I mean, the creativity um, there is just is so wonderful. And I mean, that's the, the greatest part of social media is getting to see that um, from people. Um, I'll say I'll say from the, the boring organizational end, you know, um, hardly I don't think uh, folks usually look to uh, government agencies as, you know, like the bulwark of creativity on uh, social media or anything, but that's okay. 
Um, but that being said, uh, I do think that that agencies um, like NIH uh, and, and other large organizations that are on social media but aren't, you know, out there doing, you know, these these really creative things, grassroots campaigns, are really open to being a part of the conversation or being involved or helping in some appropriate way for their accounts and for, you know, what they represent. Um, from NIH's end, I mean, it's it's the science, communicating the science, and that's, uh, you know, our mission space. Um, and so I think that uh, communications offices are often staffed with people who want to be a part of kind of these creative endeavors in the, in the right way. Um, and so are very open to being asked to collaborate or to being approached in some way. Um, and so my advice is always, you know, don't, this is kind of, this is a uh, low tech uh, kind of advice, but, you know, never be afraid to reach out with an email to communications offices and say like, hey, I'm going to do this, you know, if it's something you would be interested in, you know, let me know, like we can discuss. Um, it's not always a fit, um, you know, obviously I can't speak for every communications office if you'll hear back or not, um, but I think, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And um, and it's always a really great way to maybe start a relationship or start a dialogue about messages uh, where you have a mutual interest. Thank you. So I'll just mm -hmm. add, yes, and Anne was being modest, but I think it's been an incredible help to us to have the information that NIH provides about the diseases. Um, you know, I think it would be really impossible to overstate the impact of the internet and social media on people with rare diseases. I recall hearing Nord's founder and, and first president talk about how for many years when a story would come out, for instance, in Reader's Digest or some widely read publication, and there would just be bags and bags of letters coming into Nord from people across the country who, you know, were thrilled to find out that there was an organization that existed that might help them and had no other way to communicate. And they were seeking to connect with other people with their disease and that sort of thing. Obviously, you know, social media have completely changed that. And, and while we always remind people to be careful of the sources to make sure they're getting information from reliable sources. Um, the internet has truly been wonderful in general for those folks. We often are contacted by uh, people who, for instance, have a child who's just been diagnosed with a condition that maybe there are a dozen children around the world known to have the condition. And for them to be able to connect with other families uh, and share information, share resources, feel like there's somebody they can talk to and be heard. That's that's just hugely important. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we'll have to stop there as we've run out of time. Many, many thanks to our panelists for being with us today. It's been a delight talking with you all. I learned so much and I hope our audience did as well. If you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, please email webinar at AAAS.org. 
Thank you once again to our panel and to Foundation Ipsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone.